Hey friends, Helen here. Welcome to The Ear Upsell, the podcast where every week we find a new and exciting way to convince you to give us a five-star rating on the iTunes store, which you should totally do right now. And if you do it and you send, tweet, email me and Greg proof of the fact that you've done it, we will respond with a gift from the Saturday morning cartoon show Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Today's episode is a really, really fantastic one. Greg and I are going to be talking with Ashley Christensen, the North Carolina chef who has almost single-handedly changed the face of Raleigh's culinary scene. She's incredibly smart. She's super talented. She has a lot of really, really interesting things to say. But before we get to those interesting things, Greg, you will never guess the crazy thing that happened. Yes. We got we got an email from a fan. What? It was great. You haven't checked your email yet. We got an email from, I mean, we get emails like with moderate, but not massive frequency but we got an email from a a fan of the eater upsell named jason and he wrote to us with a suggestion for something that he wanted to hear our thoughts on in this opening section of the show where we share our thoughts on things which is a a great reminder to all of you out there that if you have a question or a topic or a, a matter of etiquette or a marital dispute or anything that you want me and greg to weigh in on Drop us a line at upsell at eater.com and you could hear us talking about it on a future episode. Well, I think we owe it to Jason to, yeah, to to indulge him this this idea then. Yeah. So what Jason asked us was if we could talk about what for each of us was our perfect restaurant experience. And I love this question slash conversation topic. Off the top of my head, I think I have an idea, but but Helen, do you want to go first? What What, what is your what is your perfect uh, scenario there? Or Well, I mean, I think that perfect is a loaded word and it's a word that changes so much depending on your mood and your level of hunger and who you're with and what you're interested in. But I I think that across the board, what makes me absolutely the happiest in a restaurant, like number one, more than anything, you're going to make fun of me for this, is a comfortable chair. Ooh. Yeah, no, I'm not making fun of you for that. I I hear you 100%. If I... Enter a restaurant and I sit down and the chair is like I am being like cradled and hugged and loved. I am willing to forgive so much. Like the the bar has just been so massively lowered for this restaurant that they could probably serve me like undercooked chicken and like a, with with like a sauce a la vomit. And I would just be like, but it's OK because I love this chair. So what are the great restaurant chairs that you've sat in? I don't know. I well, don't know. Oh, my God. I mean, I think I love the chairs at the Nomad restaurant in in Manhattan. Yes, I remember those chairs. They um they have sort of floating armrests, right? Yeah. Like there's part of it that are cut out. I mean, I love an armrest. I think armrests are super key. But like mm-hmm. it, there's just something about like like sort of sinking in and, and it, you know, I don't have to be aware of my tailbone or my posture and you just sort of float away. And it wouldn't have occurred to me that the chair is the key to restaurant perfection for me, because I think that some of, if you ask me, like, what are my most perfect restaurant experiences? Like what have been like the nights that were just flawless? I probably couldn't even tell you what the chair was. But if I'm constructing this from the ground up and I'm like looking forward, I think the first thing for me is just like, God damn it. I want that chair to feel like a hug, a chair that feels like a hug. Wow, that is a special thing. How about you? Well, you know, when I heard this question from reader Jason, I immediately thought of a very specific experience that I did have, which was about a year ago. I had lunch at uh, Mario Vitale and Joe Bastianich's restaurant Del Posto um, on a day when it was a holiday. So it's like one of the only days I had off to go and partake of their great lunch that they have there, which is much more moderately priced than dinner, I'd say. Or, you know, it's 
reasonably priced. Um, but the thing that I really loved about this experience, which I think is the 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 hallmark of perfection for me, is that it was very easy as a diner to go through it, even though it was a a, a tasting menu kind of a highfalutin thing. Sometimes you go to a restaurant if it's a you know if it's a tasting menu place or even just some place where they really you know, give a fuck about the food and you will hear a lot about the food from the server, whether you want to or not, or you will read a lot about it on the menu. And it's kind of like the food is sometimes you feel like, oh, the food is more important than your experience there. They don't make you feel like they're doing you a favor. Yes. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, and I think that's super, I mean, you know, it's interesting to me that your thought of perfection was at the high end too? Because I think I maybe yeah. would have expected from you, Greg Morbido, like person who I know and love, that your thought of restaurant perfection might be something more like along the lines of a no tablecloth, hip soundtrack, like really cool food place. Well, that's that's it. I mean, those places are certainly very exciting. And I think that when you get, um, for lack of a better term, when you go to a, a into a restaurant that has that X factor thing of, you know, you're like, well... Not only is the food interesting, but there's this great element of scene and you just feel it's exciting to be there and it's cool. You know, that is a certain kind of perfect restaurant experience. And I would argue that that is more elusive than the thing I just mentioned, though. You know, that is like it's the thing we almost spend our whole lives chasing. But you does know, perfection that, need to be attainable? Right. This is this is the fundamental philosophical question of our lives. That's a very good like, point. We all want the perfect restaurant experience and. Is it ever possible for us to capture it? And if we do capture it, will the universe just sort of immediately cease to exist and we will have achieved our oh my God. our entire purpose as humans and it's just like it's over and we transcend to the next plane and we become energy beings and we don't even need to eat again because we don't even have bodies and it's just like, all right, we're fucking done. Oh my God. We did it. We hit a perfect restaurant and life is over. That is like some amazing like Philip K. Dick novel or something like the... Uh, the, the diner in search of the perfect meal. And then once he actually attains it, like, you know, he turns into a beam of light and every every restaurant vanishes. And he was an android all along. On today's episode of The Eater Upsell, Greg and I are talking with Chef Ashley Christensen. Welcome to The Upsell. Hi. Um, Ashley is the chef of, what is it now, seven? You have seven restaurants? Seven projects in downtown Raleigh. And you are the... Like you are the, like the emperor of Raleigh, really. I think um, it's a really interesting city, and there's a lot of wonderful stuff happening. And we did have the the um, good luck and fortune of being welcomed in in the early stages of a downtown uh, revitalization. Yeah, and one of those is pools, which uh, pools is it pools diner or pools? It's pools we, diner. Yeah, which is the namesake restaurant, or I guess the cookbook. I'm not totally sure how this namesake relationship works. Yeah, the cookbook is also called Pools. It's called Pools: Recipes and Stories from a Modern Diner, and it is full of recipes and stories from a modern <laughs> diner, which is such a an alluring notion to me, the idea of a modern diner. Yeah. Are you a, a diner person? Well, um, when I was a child, my father was a truck driver. And I think one of the things is he traveled around the country. And, you know, when you're doing that, you're usually doing that alone or with uh, one one sidekick. And everywhere that he would go, you know, you have a few days of, of being there. So he would, you know, seek out places and in, in, in areas that he hadn't been to before. And I feel like his experience with diners was always that it was 
in a place that you didn't know where you were, you could count on a certain level of comfort via the diner. And I think because of that, I, I sort of viewed diners the same way. And I think because of just the experience of kind of growing up a little bit and as you start to go into new cities and new towns on your own. Um, when I had the opportunity to, to purchase this old diner, it was a, it started off as a pie shop in the 40s and kind of became the pie shop shared space with what became the luncheonette in the front. And then years later, I was offered the opportunity to purchase the lease. And that was my first venture. So pools under our leadership will be nine years in December, which is very exciting. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Do you yeah, that's like a lifetime. It really is. Do you visit diners when you travel? Yeah, I think I definitely I have a soft spot for that for sure. What's your go to order? Uh, well, you know, I think that's the cool thing about diner, much like our approach to it, is that it's so uh, unique to each place and, and that sort of bottom line of comfort. Uh, but it, it depends on the time of day. I am a big fan of the idea of the different ways that like the, the standard diner expresses something like corned beef hash, which seems to be a diner staple. Love corned beef hash. Uh, yeah, sunny side up eggs on top. Okay. <laughs> I always ask for my corned beef hash really well done. Yeah, like, I like it's, it's super crispy. 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 Yeah. <laughs> my, my rule of thumb with a diner, unless it's like a special diner, like a modern diner, yeah. for example, um, is that you're not allowed to look at the menu. I think that if you... Oh. Uh, Greg disagrees <laughs> oh. with a moan of disapproval. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, no, I think you I'm, can. No, that wasn't but disapproval. That was, that was, that was, I think that's a very, it's a cool rule. That's a cool move. So do you look at the guy in the paper hat and say, what's good? Or do you look at your neighbor's plate? But it's a combination of those two things. And I think there are also certain rule of thumb dishes that you know a diner is going to be able to execute well, sure. right? Like you want to sort of stay within the eggs family. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can stray into pancakes if it's a place that is clearly known for pancakes or like, you know, if you want to do a burger, if you want to do, but like maybe the move in a diner is not to go towards the beef stroganoff sure, or sure. the fettuccine Alfredo <laughs> or the whole fish, yeah. you know, or the, yeah, the, the shawarma or the, I always stop at, I, I go on road trips a lot and I obsessively stop at diners and I will yeah. stop at them even when I'm not hungry. If, if it's an old diner car that I love or I mean, just sure. whatever it is. And, and, Increasingly, I think it's hard to find a diner where they're actually making the stuff from scratch and not just kind of having the Cisco truck pull up. Yeah, I guess that would be the other example of the not the modern diner, but the modernized. Diner. Oh, that's a good <laughs> distinction. Um, but so so at pools, when you walk in, uh, I love the idea of the old like shiny diner cars. But, you know, we're just a little kind of nail building on this old block in Raleigh and from the outside, you can't really, the outside of the building doesn't tell you much. But when you walk in, it's this shotgun space and there's a double horseshoe counter and, you know, just this beautiful formica green top from way back when. And my, it's one of my favorite pieces of the restaurant. There are a bunch of just rubs on the bar where oh. you can see, you know, the outline of coffee cups or, you know, where someone, some, someone who ate with their elbows on that counter for 20 years, you know, just uh, <laughs> really, really neat um, time sort of timeline. That's beautiful. I love sitting at counters and diners too, because I feel like, especially with a big double U-shaped, like those yeah. massive seating counters, it speaks so much to what I think is the most beautiful act in a diner, which is re the refill on your coffee. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the counter is just like someone like, you know, your, your guy in a white hat or your like old salty waitress or whoever it is comes by and she's got the pot. Sure. And just, you want more coffee. And it's, it's, 
it's beautiful. Absolutely. And isn't there something great about like, so we, we own a coffee shop and we're super proud of it. It's great. And they make all this incredible, you know, once again, sort of the modern coffee. Right. <laughs> um, but I still have such a soft spot for like diner coffee in that glass pot sitting on the the warming the the warming pad and and I actually still love like gas station coffee. Again, I think something sort of handed down. I think it's so symbolic of like late night on the road and I think that's also something handed down from uh, from my dad. At Pools you guys have a famous uh chalkboard menu and I'm very curious as to whether or not there are any rules regarding that chalkboard menu. Are there only certain people who get to write it? Uh, How does it get changed? And and like, who is like the keeper of the chalkboard? There are definitely only certain people who can write on the chalkboard, which we learned early when you walk out of the kitchen and you look at the boards and it's like, oh my God, who wrote that? <laughs> and, uh, you know, then the, the people who are identified as having the, uh, the skill to write on the chalkboard are quickly um, regretful that they showed us that skill because, you know, then it's uh. like, we need you. Where are you? But uh, th so the first person, this is kind of a fun story. The first person to write on the chalkboards is uh, a guy who started off just bartending with us, working full time, was a part of helping us sort of rebuild the diner. And his name, he's a local artist in Raleigh. His name is Luke Buchanan. And he was the guy who wrote all the boards at first. And he still works with us, I think, just out of, you know, sort of like feeling like, like we're part of his family and he's part of ours. Um, so he works a night or two with us just to sort of be around and be a part of things. Otherwise, he makes paintings and teaches art. But he actually did from from the old days of him doing all the headers on the chalkboards and writing the boards. He did all the illustrations in the book. Oh, that's so lovely. Yeah. What a really beautiful way to bring the whole world of the restaurant. Into Absolutely. The and, you know, I think that was something that was really important to us, too, was anything that we were representing about the space and the experience for it really to be instead of calling in an artist we'd never met to do, make chalkboard art, that we wanted it to look and feel uh, to look and feel like like the diner itself and the, and the real experience of being in the space. So is the mac and cheese the most popular dish at pools? Hands down. By like orders of magnitude. How many? Yeah. yeah. How many people order it? Uh, well, like so we percentage? sell a little over 15,000 of them a year. Holy crap. And, oh you know, we're God. open seven days now. And it's it's sort of our our gauge, which we, we talk about this in the book, like looking back to when we first opened, you know, we were poor. We had very few uh, people actually working in the diner and we would come in at seven in the morning to start prepping and be lucky to leave if we made it to our own bar by last call. Um, so the, the days were super long, but they were made up of things like grating all that cheese on a home box grater oh because God. we like couldn't afford to buy a food processor. <laughs> 15,000 is tremendous. It's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. That's like 5% of the population of Raleigh. Right. <laughs> I mean, that, that is, it's, but you know, it's like that, you know, it's, it's that dish in any restaurant that as soon as, if someone walks out of a kitchen in a bistro with a pile of pommes frites, you know, all the 40 percent of the turn. people who, who are sitting there look up are going to order the dish. So uh, and also I think it's just one of those things that we feel like it's very representative of our food. The idea of just looking at something super simple and really caring about the details. And and so uh, we're really happy. You know, it's you, you could be kind of haunted by those dishes where, you know, you put the, you know, the, the lobster dish on the menu and then everybody orders the lobster dish. But, you know, the macaroni we feel like is such a an amazing way to people love to talk about it. And so people who have never been in the restaurant walk in and they're, they look around and they say, we, we're not sure what we're going to have, but we know we have to have the macaroni au gratin. Is there one station in the kitchen that just makes the macaroni? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that guy, um, 
gets a, a you know hits a point of like palate fatigue at the end of the night and has to take a a break and drink some sparkling water because the you know the big key we, and we talk about this in the head note of the recipe is that the more most important gr- ingredient of that dish is the tasting spoon. So oh. so that guy is you know and they're made to order so. You know, the cream, the three cheeses and the al dente macaroni all cooked together, a touch of sea salt and, you know, making sure it's perfect. And then uh, the same three cheeses on top and up into the broiler. That sounds like one of those jobs, like professional macaroni and cheese taster, yeah. where people will be like, that's a dream gig. Yeah. And then you do it for a week huh. and you're just like, this is a little overwhelming. Yeah, we would advertise the job in like High Times magazine <laughs> and just be like overrun <laughs> with resumes. Just Come taste written, mac and cheese all the time. Handwritten resumes. It would know. be so beautiful. <laughs> you know, the food that you serve at, at pools, and it's so evident throughout the cookbook, and, and I imagine this is the case at your other restaurants as well, is so um, clearly an expression of the vernacular of the region of North Carolina and of the South in general. And it has such clarity to it. Um, yeah, I think we're really proud of, you know, so much of what defines our food and our food traditions is about like what grows where we live. And there's so much of it. And there's so many incredible farmers and growers that, you know, just like all over the country, but to be in North Carolina, where specifically where we are, we're three hours from the mountains and we're two hours from the coast. And that's a really fantastic place to be. And there's so much to work, work with. And I think the thing that really keeps us focused on what we're doing is, you know, the relationships of all the people we're representing through our work. And so it's not necessarily just food and traditional title. It's these ingredients, you know, expressed and, and, you know, through the experience of, of myself and all the folks who are part of our teams. How did your awareness of that evolve? Um, You know, I think this is probably true of a, a lot of cooks, but it took me a long time to really be confident in that. I think we spend so much time thinking about the place that that we grew up and and without, you know, regardless of how you feel about it, we, you sort of feel like evolving before you mature into what you're going to do is about getting out into the world and asking for more. And I had a lot of those great experiences, but when it came time to like do what I wanted to do, I, I, it was a really wonderful thing to recognize that there was so much amazing stuff in our story and the place that we call home to be able to share with the world. And that it was, that was the most genuine way to express my food was to really believe in our story and to believe in the place that we live. And I think, um, I think you've been a part of the Southern Foodways Alliance uh, symposium before. Yeah. Uh, I had my first visit there about eight years ago, and that just really opened me up to celebrating these relationships and friendships with chefs all over the country. And it was really fun to be so enamored with what other people were doing and to go and, you know, experience it in the places where they cook and to cook next to a lot of these great folks for charities or causes or, you know, celebrations of food. And then as I'm asking them questions, they were all asking me questions too about what I, what I was doing in my food. And we had we had really moved towards the food that we make now but I think with some reluctancy, you know, to re- to really feel like, you know, ha- how can we be as great as everything else that's going on in the world? And, and the way that you do that is to be exactly who you are at home and to share that with people everywhere. So um, I think that was, I think, one of the things I'm most grateful to the Southern Foodways Alliance for is really teaching me about the importance of my voice and, and telling that story and and that that is what, what, what makes you um, who you feel like at home is really what makes you unique. 
Is there anything that you think that the rest of the country doesn't understand about Southern food and, you know, what y'all are doing? Like, are there any big misconceptions about what's going on in Southern food right now? I mean, I think I think that's a little bit of a a thing of the past because we've we've had so much, you know, airtime, I think, in uh, in the last, I don't know, six or seven years which has been a really wonderful thing where, you know, I think there were a lot of misconceptions previously about everything in the South is deep fried and hopped up with sugar. And, um, you know, there, there are pieces of that, but there are pieces of that everywhere and, and really in, in a lot of cultures. But uh, so so I think it was really neat for me just a little while back to when traveling around to see how much the South is like a part of Brooklyn or, you know, all, all these places all over the country where people are really embracing Southern cuisine, um, you know, accurately or not, it's really neat to see it permeate all these other areas and to see that this is something that um, is finding a new voice and that people really uh, crave not just that food, but understanding what what makes it so. The downside of something like that, though, not to take this to too dark a place, but whenever something becomes trendy, it runs the risk of falling out of fashion. And I think, you know, the South is always the South in the South. But exactly what you're talking about where you see, you know, fried chicken sandwiches are the coolest thing in the world right now everywhere in the U.S. (laughs) And and everybody is starting to be awakened to the glories of pimento cheese and fried bologna and, and, you know, sorghum. And and there's, I don't know, do you worry that there's going to be the fall? Um, I don't because I think, you know, I think the thing that will will happen if there's a fall is that the people who aren't truly connected to it will move on and, and do other things. And not to say that that opportunity doesn't belong to everyone who has a passion for the, you know, for the experience of something that they're drawn to. But, you know, it's it's like anything. It's like, is Italy worried about people getting tired of Italian food? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, so um, I, th- I think for us, and also also like with what we're doing, part of, you know, what, what makes uh, a, a culture and food e- evolve is it's, it's past, present, and future. And I think to really, to live in that, um, you have a, a, you know, a really unique advantage in being able to keep, to keep that culture alive. You know, you have to really, I think, truly be a part of it, but there's also so much, um, that it's so amazing to watch people celebrate Southern food based on, you know, their passion for experiences that they've had. And that also means a lot. Like, I don't, I don't find that offensive in any way. I think it's a really wonderful thing to see. You know, I think one of the reasons like that there's Southern food in Brooklyn is because there are also many, also so many Southerners in Brooklyn. (laughs) All my friends who, when I was in college, you know, when we graduated, they, they either moved to Brooklyn, Portland or San Francisco. And it was like, that's where, you know, a lot of like creative folks kind of spread out to. And then as our community changed, people started to stay, which was a really amazing thing. But I think that that has a little bit to do with where we see a lot of that food, um, you know, serving an audience that, that, you know, was previously an audience to the South. Do you find that the knowledge base of your diners has changed over the years? Like, do people come in knowing their shit? Absolutely. And, you know, I think that that has a lot to do with, um, like food, food television and food media. And for all the things that people have to say about something like, you know, programs on the Food Network, no matter how you feel about that, it changed how people, how they cared about food and the things they wanted to know. And so 
no matter what is being shared with folks, it, it got people really fired up about um, having a, a working knowledge of food. And so I think when when that happened, uh, aside from the fact that, you know, all of a sudden uh, the chef was like the new superstar, which has had a major impact, I think, on kitchens and the workforce, um, maybe slightly positive in some ways. But the negative of that is you end up with a bunch of young cooks who, uh, you know, who are coming out of some some of the programs and just don't want to work in kitchens. They want to work yeah, in, in, in studios, front of a camera. Um, which um, great, uh, but it makes it a little difficult for, for us to build up teams in the restaurant. You know, we're not, we're not deeply affected by that, but in, in the ways that you would hope that that would have driven our workforce a little more, we didn't necessarily get that advantage. But the, the flip side is um, you've got a bunch of people who come in and have all these great questions uh, that I think allows them to care about food at a higher level. And, and when that happens, there's so much more of a natural appreciation for the things that you care about in food, like your growers and the folks who are, you know, bringing fish from the coast or whatever it might be, all the great makers out there. So by by way of those conversations, we, we then get to, um, it becomes easier to define the value in our food. Let's talk a little bit about that idea of building the team and building the community of your yeah. restaurant itself. Because with seven, what, did, what was the word you used? Projects? <laughs> yeah, projects. Projects. With seven projects, which includes the coffee shop and restaurants. I mean, you must have a massive staff. We have 265 uh, employees currently, and that's that's growing. So our, you know, we've got uh, Pools is the first, Beasley's is our fried chicken joint, Chuck's is our burger joint, Fox is our cocktail lounge. Jewel is our coffee shop that has a full-service kitchen. Death and Taxes is our most recent restaurant, uh, Woodfire Grill. And then above that, we've got a private event space called Bridge Club. And then outside of that, when we did the last two projects, we also um, built a commissary kitchen to basically to centralize prep so that we could, like kind of the workhorse prep, so that we could um, you know, be closer in touch with all the folks who were supporting the restaurants from a prep perspective, but also so that we could then access as we grew, we could stop building giant walk-ins in downtown real estate and we could have walk-ins just a little bit outside of town that would allow us to, um, you know, to approach whole animals and do a lot of the things that small restaurants sometimes are, are limited space-wise from. But uh, yeah, so te team-wise, we've got incredible folks. Um, I really enjoy taking a lot of the blame for we're basically all the blame for uh, for the position that I've put us in by opening restaurants too fast. So what, what we've done in the last um, couple of years, which has been just amazing. So the company, we did our first expansion after three years of great success at Pools Diner and just kind of looked around the community and thought, this is such a special place. There's People are so appreciative of the work that we were doing. And it was such an incredible relationship that we just thought, well, let's, I've, I'd been traveling. I'd been looking at all these great concepts all over the place and got really fired up about what my city needed. And the other piece was looking at our incredible staff at pools and all these wonderful folks and they're doing all these great things. And I just sort of looked around and thought, what am I going to do when they hit their ceiling with this little 2000 square foot restaurant, you know, and. Um, so, so that was one of the first pieces that had to do with, you know, that er, informed our growth. And so 
we grew with this great energy and really exciting stuff. And people were so excited in the community. And we were growing this incredible staff of folks who wanted to work with us, which was so special and, and so exciting. And you get kind of high on all that. And then you look around and realize that you and two other people are like the only common thread <laughs> of all these folks. And so we had a really brilliant uh, GM at our, our second project uh, was made up of the three uh, Chucks, Beasleys and Fox. And it was in an old Piggly Wiggly from the 40s. Oh, that's so great. So it had kind of small footprint. Um, so it's not like a enormous building, but allowed us to open three small concepts, which I'm a really big fan of a space where you can walk in and look around and see yeah. everyone, you know, and, and know what's going on. But they, sh they share a kitchen and we hired a guy who, who was very persistent about applying and, you know, sure, we'll, we'll meet, we'll meet, we'll meet. And finally we did. And he was just incredible. And uh, he had uh, a lot of experience in, you know, small kind of mom and pop bars and restaurants in our area. But then um, he's a couple of years older than I am. And a handful of years back, he had gone to work for Panera, which is like the big, yeah. you know, so I, you look at that and it's like, how, how will this person's ideas align with what we want to do? What I knew, and I think what he was happy to, to say was that, you know, look, I, I have experiences in a world that you don't, that as you're growing could be really beneficial. And he and I butted heads constantly. And, and then you realize that's the best thing in the world that you want someone who you can disagree with and then learn to learn to work with so that you can become something greater than you can be on your own. And so, so he came in with ideas about like efficiency totally. and scaling and how to, you know, chop all the onions at the beginning of the week kind of thing. Yeah, totally. Like where he would be like, how, how, how do you want to do this? And I'm like, just do it great. He's like, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> I mean so. The logistics are really fast. I think especially, you know, in cases like this one, you have a chef who is sort of the creative and business force behind a single restaurant, scaling that to a multi-door enterprise is yeah. a totally different skill than working a line or hiring a good sous chef. I mean, like that exact kind of thing, like how are we going to do it? Like you can't just say make it good and sure. extend that out to seven restaurants. Oh, because it's very different than just standing next to someone and, you know, talking about a dish and both of you tasting it together and you're like growing the restaurant side by side with folks. And you can do that really successfully, you know, but when you expand, you figure out quickly that you can't be everywhere all the time. And so um, I have to say, when we opened up the second projects, it became a place that it just terrified me to walk into because I felt so different. I felt so different there than I did in the place that, you know, that the, your first place will always be home. And so um, it really rocked me for a little while there. And then we, you know, kind of caught our, caught our steam. And um, Derek Riotti, who is the gentleman who was hired as the GM there, did a brilliant job and was really like training people to run things as opposed to training them to work beside him, which was what, you know, being involved in and in working side by side with folks was a great strength of mine. But I didn't realize how it would feel when you couldn't when you couldn't do that. So uh, he is now uh, the VP of the company and had stepped up as our director of operations and now is very involved in our, um, you know, what we realized we had to go back and do. We had to build a whole executive department to oversee these restaurants, but also, you know, looking back at all, you, you get so excited about giving people opportunities and the folks who want to be a part of what you're doing. And so you promote folks and then you realize 
that you've failed them uh, in the aspect of providing mentorship. And so he's done a beautiful job of working with me and working with a handful of other folks that, that we've hired in that department to go in and really teach folks all the things they know, not that, that we feel like we can share with them, not just to run our projects, but you know, one of my biggest goals is we'd love for people to stay with us for a long time. It's inevitable that they're going to leave. We want to put people into the world who can really run restaurants. What is like an average night when you're working, how do you manage this kingdom of restaurants? Do you go to one place? Do you go to several places? Sure. How do you how do you keep the quality up? Well, you know, I'm mostly involved. I don't really, I don't, I shouldn't say I don't really, I don't work the line. I, uh, you know, with this many places, I get to work in a really fun spot of like the, the creative of working on, you know, company culture, but also the, the menu changes and it varies shop to shop. Like someone, my, my sous chef, uh, and my sous chefs and chef de cuisine at Pool's Diner have been with us for a very long time. So it's really easy to say, remember that dish we did, we're going to do it like this. Let's talk to this guy about something new he's growing. And I'd like to, you know, put this on the menu this way. And so they, they really, we speak a, a language where I can walk in after I've said that and they've got the, the round one of the dishes and we might make a small tweak or two, but they're really knocking it out of the park. Um, younger restaurants, we spent, I spend a lot of time with those folks, you know, rather in communication, but then side by side learn, you know, figuring out how um, to develop, um, you know, a, a new voice in these, in these different restaurants. So, you know, it's interesting. I, as I said, I, I don't work service, but we're very involved in all of the restaurants, but I don't have to be there, nor am I there every day. Um, I'm somewhere every day, but I'm not in all of them every day. Uh, but they are, they are so close together and it, it is easy to walk around and pay a visitor, pop in. Uh, but they, they really are self-sufficient, um, shops, but I get to, I think, sort of affect them at a, at a higher level when it comes to, you know, we're always working on how their menus can be greater and how to, you know, how to get each, each, you know, captain of each shop more involved in, in expressing things that they want to be a part of. When you were a young cook starting out, did you, I'm assuming you dreamed of your own restaurant, but did you dream of your own empire? Never. <laughs> and I think when I opened <laughs> pools, you know, I had no idea. And, and I get asked that question a lot. Like, did you have any idea that it would, it oh, would well, be shit. like Oh, well, never mind. I'm <laughs> unasking the question. Well, no, no. Only um, original questions on this podcast. <laughs> um, what kind of dinosaur would you be? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a T-Rex, because their arms are so adorable. They are. And I don't like to do push-ups either. Perfect. Perfect. But but yeah, so so um, I had no idea, you know, and, and it really was. It had so much to do with the incredible folks who are working with us and this community that was just so ready for, for more, you know, and, and there were great things already happening there, but we just, that our city was growing fast. And it was uh, also, I think a really important time to look at these great old buildings that were anchoring, you know, sort of quiet streets and, and, you know, the two, two, two of our buildings are on corners and, um, we really enjoy that. So be, being able to go in and sort of energize a part of town that gets other people excited about, you know, adding businesses. And it also means that we can take buildings that we really want to see preserved to continue to be a part of our um, of our city. So, so that's been a really fun piece as well. And that urban planning facet of things is so interesting. Yeah. And I think so often not 
part of the surface level conversation about why to open certain restaurants in certain places. And, sure. and you know, you mentioned earlier that you and your restaurants have been part of the sort of resurgence of Raleigh's downtown, mm-hmm. the revitalization. Although I guess that's a, a loaded term in urban <laughs> planning. And it's it's a really exciting thing that's happening right now in the restaurant world. I think cities that have had maybe slightly depressed downtown areas have have been using restaurants as the anchors to bring foot traffic back and to bring culture back and to bring nightlife back to streets and neighborhoods where maybe it was just a little bit of a ghost town. Yeah. And I think that's a, you know, Raleigh is a government. It's a, it's the capital of North Carolina and it's a government town. So uh, when I moved there 22 years ago, it was after five o'clock, it was tumbleweed in downtown. And it's amazing to see the difference now. But um yeah, I think restaurants are a natural fit for that because of a few things. Everybody eats, you know, and um, when you can create a concept that someone wants to experience and you can you can create experiences within all these, you know, all these different spots, people start to imagine their lives, you know, around, you know, you live life and then the places that you want to celebrate it, you, you immediately see yourself and your friends being in these spots. So to, you know, one of my goals immediately when we opened the restaurant was to look at, at at those experiences and to to want to create a space where someone could stop by after work and grab a glass of wine and a salad or if they had a business dinner and the boss was paying it was the place they wanted to take you know to take their crew or if they had friends coming in town to see Raleigh for the first time that I, I wanted that to come out of people's mouths for them to say I have to show you this place that I love that that makes me feel great when I'm there so um, you know, I think for all the things that we as restaurant owners and as chefs um, that we desire to create, those things just work so well hand in hand with making or helping people to see what's great about a city. When we were um, talking about the mac and cheese, you were saying it was a little bit of a slow start at at pools. And I'm just kind of curious, what was what was the big moment? Like, what was the thing that really set it off? Or was it this gradual build until it became this kind of phenomenon? Well, it was complete insanity when we opened um, and we just were trying to figure out how to really run a restaurant. You know, it, it is different to, you know, I'd been a part of a few restaurant programs and I'd, I'd been a chef in a space and had a really great time learning through that experience. But this was something that there was so much exciting energy and you go into your first project that you own saying, I'm going to, you know, you look at all the experiences that you've had and you say, I'm going to do it this way. And and so a lot of that stuck around and some of it um, didn't necessarily go back to other ways I'd seen it done, but evolved into something greater. So we had a very small staff and you look at it and you, you, you want everybody working hard and working together. And then you figure out that, hey, wait a minute, if we have one more back weight, that guy can be polishing glasses instead of the bartender who should be making drinks. So I think when there were a few things that we did, we, we matured enough to really start to listen to our guest which when you when you listen as opposed to having, you know, folks, you know, throwing information at you that you don't want to hear when you really engage with folks in conversations, I think it's one of the first ways that I really felt like a part of the community when people weren't just saying things because they were unhappy. They were saying things to us because they cared about our success. So I really, uh, hmm. myself and my crew really learned to enjoy that process. But also as we looked at the ways to make the restaurant just you know, just simply a better restaurant by becoming more efficient. We, you know, ultimately meant 
we made better food, we made food faster, we served people better. So uh, I think that was a big thing. I think we had a lot of buzz and we got super busy. And then we just weren't as busy because it was like, we didn't take reservations. There was just this mob all at one time and it was kind of a mess. And we were really learning how to do this thing that we we, we knew what we wanted to create experience wise. We just weren't 100% sure how to get there. So we, we learned, you know, the old fashioned way. <laughs> Are there any rules of thumb that have arisen as you've opened seven places that like, you know, like we're going to have a reservation line or like you just sort of walk in the door and you have these like tricks or secrets. Sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, investing in the training and preparation of your staff is huge. I think, um, equipping a restaurant with the things seem expensive and, and, and opening when you're doing your first projects, it's all worth it to not have to, you know, you buy two, um, towers for your, uh, Vitamix, you, you get all the glassware that you need, you get the right dish you get all the, you get all the things. And, uh, and not to say like you go crazy, but when it comes to s- smart investing and how you equip a restaurant, it pretty immediately, if you can count on creating a great experience and being busy, it immediately, tra- uh, you know, translates to the experience of the guest. So I think that's a big thing. I also think, um, it's so hard to do, but, understanding that no matter how long it takes to build a restaurant and how frustrated you are and how out of money you are to take a window of time to organize the restaurant and to have the proper amount of time with your staff, because it happens all the time that it goes, you know, it takes so much longer than you think it will. And it's go time and everybody just says, let's do it. And you get, you go after it before you should. And I I think that's a lesson we've learned that has been a tremendous, uh, a tremendous lesson. But one of the things that we did with our most recent restaurant, Death and Taxes, it was well, it was very behind schedule, which I think that's, you know, when you ask someone when their restaurant's going to open and they tell you in, in your head, you're like, okay, I'll see you six months from this. <laughs> Craig and I are very familiar <laughs> yeah. with this as so editors of Eater. We, we learned to have less heartbreak over that, the things that we don't, don't have the ability to control. We learn how to be better at controlling them in the future. But with death and taxes, it was very behind. And I had this kind of weird idea. Um, it, you know, it's a wood fire grill. We had this beautiful, uh, we had this beautiful grill built in Texas and had it shipped down and it was incredible. And it was a new way, you know, though we'd done a lot of social cooking, like outdoor cooking by, by means mm-hmm. of hardwood cooking, you know, um, it was something that I hadn't really done in a restaurant before. And I thought about how the experience of traveling around and cooking with folks, how every time I cooked with someone, I learned something. And especially when we had guest chefs in, it sort of even changed the way that I pr- approached my own food. So with this being really a, a new um, a new way to cook for us within a restaurant, we decided to do a series called the Firestarter series. And we invited chefs from all over the country who we respect. Uh, and it's actually quite focused in the South, but um, we invited folks to come in and we did, uh, we you know, brought them in and, and paid them to be there because we were going to, we intended to sell the experience and for uh, basically ourselves to be the charity <laughs> that we were the cause that we wanted to, uh, we had a lot of ideas about what we wanted to do, but it was really important to me to think about 
one of the most valuable pieces of traveling and cooking with other folks has been this great education of seeing how people approach things that I uh, might have approached differently. So we invited a series of chefs, uh, Tandy Wilson from City House in Nashville, Sean Brock from uh, Husk Monero and McCready's. Um, so, and was this to open the restaurant? So we ran this series of dinners for a handful of weeks where we did two nights of service with a chef visiting. And we just asked them to make sure that fire, that cooking with the grill was an element in all of their dishes. Um, Jason Stanhope was one of our guest chefs as well. Uh, so we, we got to watch folks that we respect work in our space and approach not just the grill, but the entire space differently than we would have. This is brilliant. It was incredible. So it was really like this, you know, it's, it's one thing. It allowed us to um, invite folks from the community into the space and to really see the space and, and, and to sort of have a soft they opening. They beta tested your kitchen they for you. They beta tested the kitchen. This is genius. <laughs> and we this all, is blowing and we all had my a, mind. We all had a great time doing it. And, and it was just, it was tremendous. And so I really, I look at that and I'm like, I want to find a way to do that in yeah. every restaurant that I open because we had this great communal experience. It was a barn raising. Yeah, it was incredible. So this is beautiful. The other thing that was really cool, we were working with a local potter called Hand. It's uh, H A. A and D, and they're uh, ab about thirty-five miles away from us, and they were doing all this this beautiful pottery work, and we met with them about sort of designing plates specifically for death and taxes. And what we decided to do was we we have a private events department, so we use used all there, just like plain white china. And then while the all the chefs were coming through for Firestarter, we saved all the ashes from them cooking in the grill. We collected them, and the guys who were making the pottery came through. They took all the ashes, and oh, glazed that's so cool. We glazed all the plates with this collection of ashes from this great like community experience of so cooking cool. with all these great chefs. Yeah. Oh my god! Like the the layers of cool for yeah. that series of dinners. Yeah, is, I'm blown away by this idea of beta testing the kitchen. I Absolutely. think it's just so brilliant because you don't know how a space flows until you actually really spend time in it. Absolutely, and because it's your space, I'm projecting everything onto mm -hmm. here, but like, because it's your space, you're, you know, what went into the design, you know, what went into it. But if you throw other chefs and their teams in there blind, you can just see naturally where they flow and where they find bottlenecks and, and what works really well and what you might need to fiddle with. Totally. It's freaking genius. It's great. And, uh, you know, it is something that I want to figure out how to fit into every program we do moving forward. But we were all like a just a, a, a part. We were, they were basically our pal consultants who you know who came in and 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 also I just love any any chance that we get to have our friends in to cook to share an experience with our direct community. It's almost like they're traveling to those restaurants. Yeah, there was a, a really beautiful piece uh, that Kim Severson wrote about you for the New York Times a couple of years ago that sort of painted you as, as the, the sun in the center of this solar system of extraordinary women cooks and people in the food world in, in your, in your region, but also just sort of everywhere. And I think like that, I mean, that's incredible. Was well, I, you know, I think, uh, the impression that we've been able to make, uh, and our presence locally and nationally is, is about food, but it's also so much about, I really, I focus on positivity and how, our work can be so much more than just making food or just making drinks. And so we are absolutely in love with getting to provide the experience of, you know, the hustle and bustle of the restaurant. But it was so, um, 
it was so amazing to figure out what we had the ability to affect. And, and it's also a great responsibility. And I think every, every chef in every community feels it, that people really look, you know, restaurant is, is a center of community. And so when we realized the things that we were able to affect by leading people towards great causes, we do a lot of work with Share Our Strength. We do a lot of work with a number of local causes, but also when it comes to even just being a positive voice for anything that uh, that our community or, or and when I say community, I feel like it's 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 not the idea of a specific zip code. It's it's everything that our work and our friendships touches, you know. And so I think of that as a really a really broad term, but just you know approaching challenging situations with with positivity, and and you know looking at our clientele and our community and being able to say. Hey, hey, folks, here's something that we're really excited about, and we believe we can make a big difference in this work. Um, you know, can, can you join us in this? And so that, that's been really um, incredible and, and something that I look at now, and I imagine myself to be in the restaurant industry for as long as I'm living, but I realize that a, a great part of my calling will be to, to, you know, to work for great causes and to figure out how restaurants can play a bigger role in, in uh, making a difference. The Times article focuses particularly on your relationships and your friendships with women. Is that a, an intentional thing that you've cultivated in terms of bringing these communities together? Well, I think you're looking at a, at a time or we're looking at a time when um, a lot of a lot of women were being celebrated in the kitchen finally. And it's something um, that, that I, I never felt held back or challenged by the perception of women in 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 the, you know, the, the restaurant workforce or the restaurant world. Uh, but I absolutely recognize that it's a very real thing. And so I think it's been really tremendous to a place like North Carolina, where there's so many talented people across the board. And, and the conversation that I have so often is how important um, in leadership and in, you know, just kitchen teams and staffing and presence in general, just the balance is 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 so important. And so uh, I think North Carolina is a place where women at this point are really celebrated. And, and I think it's a great thing and uh, really proud to, to work among such such talented women in our area. You know, we, we just wrote a cookbook and it's amazing that Vivian Howard in Kinston uh, is, is putting out a cookbook at the same time. And it's going to be incredible about her stories and experiences from Kinston to New York to Kinston again. And then um, uh, Katie up at uh, Curate. Mm -hmm. Katie Button at Curate in Asheville is putting out a book at the same time. And what a neat experience to celebrate like three points of the of, of our great state. You know, is there a, something special about North Carolina, like something in the water that like makes that state respect women? Like, I don't know, like what is, well, maybe, caveats, maybe it's but, us. Maybe, maybe it's, you <laughs> maybe know, maybe it's, it's everybody. Make, the state makes good women. Yeah, maybe the state just makes great women. Yeah, Isn't that so. the, uh, the state's motto? Or yeah, something? we make great no, women. It's know. on the license plates. <laughs> it's like the great women state. North yeah. Carolina. I would buy that T-shirt. <laughs> I would totally wear a T-shirt. We should make North that Carolina, the Great Women's State. I love it. I love it. Let's do it. We can buy it like a bundled set copy of the Pools Cookbook and a Great Women T-shirt. <laughs> I love it. It's totally perfect. Well, Ashley, we have reached the the part of our show that we like to call the lightning round, but you can call it whatever you want. Awesome. Um, I'm excited. And uh, for today's lightning round, we have a special guest question asker. All right. It will not be me or Greg. Um, it is. Eater's very own restaurant editor, Bill Addison. Hi, Bill. Bill. Handful of questions for you. <laughs> All right. 
Hey, Ashley, it's Bill Addison, restaurant editor and national critic for Eater. Hope you're well. Here are some questions for you. What's the one dish served in any of your restaurants that you most crave? She's making such a face right now. Oh, wow. (laughs) Roast chicken. From which one? Pool's Diner. What's special about the roast chicken? I just love roast chicken. And it's it's just, uh, you know, some crushed garlic cloves with the side of a knife and um, fresh herbs and just cooked skin side down and roasted. And I just think it's simple and delicious. Half chicken? Just, uh, yeah, it, it can be half chicken from time to time. Um, usually just the, just the, just the breast. Oh, wow. Really? Chicken breast? Yeah. That's well, not you what know, I expected the, you the, to with say. With the little guy on, skin okay. on and bone on and all, all right. So like a legit <laughs> breast, yeah. not like a tragic egg white style <laughs> yeah. chicken breast. All right. Next question from Bill. If you couldn't live in the South anymore, where would you move? These are such great questions. I would live in Portland, Oregon. Why? Because it's just a great community. I, I've got a ton of friends who live there. There's so much food. There's so much, uh, so many great restaurants, um, and so much incredible stuff growing there. That's a good answer. <laughs> All right, hit us up with the next one, Bill. What's your favorite show on television ever? Law and Order. SVU or Class SVU. SVU. I, I just assumed because SVU is the correct answer. <laughs> Absolutely. So- <laughs> Obviously. Good. As, as someone who doesn't sleep well and it's always on in the middle of the night, so great. Yeah. When I moved to New York, I was really excited. I was like, I know this city. I've seen 17 episodes of SVU. <laughs> I know exactly what's going to happen. It was great. I'll guess <laughs> Simpsons right behind that. Oh, yeah. I like your commitment to long-running TV shows. <laughs> Very strong. All right. More from Bill. If you had to do one basic kitchen job over and over again for the rest of your working life, which task would you choose? I would baste roasting chicken on the uh, on the saute station. Do you use a baster or do you use a spoon? Just a spoon. Yeah. It's just such a, I feel like it's such a relaxing task. Have you, um, have you ever used a baster? No. They are the most <laughs> useless <seen> <laughs> devices. And they just look so gross to They're clean. They're so <laughs> weird. And they fall apart immediately if you yeah. have like, they're absolutely dumb. I think the greatest tip that anybody can ever get is baste with a freaking spoon. Yeah. Don't buy into big basters propaganda. (laughs) Next question, Bill. What's the most overrated seasonal vegetable? You know what? Can I give the answer that I just don't believe in vegetables being overrated? That's so diplomatic. Well, you know, it's one of those things. It's how we use it. But I just I have a really hard time with like this argument of, um, you know, like everyone's tired of kale. Like it's a vegetable. Like. Don't eat it if you don't want it. Um, What is the most recent new vegetable that you tried? Or have you worked through all the world's vegetables? I feel pretty, pretty strong on my vegetable game. Can I, can I say a vegetable that I'm really happy to see celebrated? Yes. Would be kohlrabi. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My father grew it when I was a kid and I loved the way the name sounded. And now I just love, I love eating it. It's a cool vegetable. It's delicious raw. It's delicious cooked. Cool name. Yeah. It's a fun name. And the greens are good. I mean, it's, great. it's a great vegetable. It's a wonderful vegetable. All right. All around. All hail kohlrabi. That's also a t-shirt I would wear. Yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Next question, Bill. If you could only eat your meals at one fast food chain for the rest of your life, which one would you pick? Would you count Waffle House? I don't think that's fast food. That's not fast food. Okay. One fast food chain. Would Shake Shack call? Would that count as 
It's not really fast food either, is it? Shake Shack? Yeah. I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a gray area, but I'll accept that. Okay, I'm going to I'm gonna take it back. I'm going to give, I know my answer. All right. Bojangles. Oh, yeah. Boom. Oh, what's, yeah. what's your order? I've heard good things about this Bojangles. I've never been to one. Yeah, the chi- the Cajun chicken biscuit and what they, they refer to their iced tea as legendary. And I just think that's so rad that they call their own iced tea legendary. <laughs> I wonder what the legend of their iced tea is. <laughs> It's got to be. It's haunted. They do have their chicken biscuits are really spectacular. They're fantastic. God, chicken (laughs) biscuits are so good. Just great. Can you imagine a Bojangles in Brooklyn? It would be mobbed. It'd be insane. Um, I could imagine a sort of upscale riff on a Bojangles where all the food is like $17 or something. That already exists in Brooklyn in like 14 locations. Yeah, that's true, actually. (laughs) If you want to spend 23 bucks on a chicken biscuit, I can can tell you where to make that happen. Uh, I think we have one question left in our lightning round. Hit us with it. What's the food you miss most from your childhood? Uh, the food I miss most from childhood would be pastina, you know, the little tiny. So my father used to make that for me just like when he was just cooking for me, the little tiny pasta with a touch of butter and Parmesan. Do you ever make it still for yourself? I don't. It's one of those things It's like... You know how when you have an experience and you kind of don't want to create it because it's, it means so much to you as it stands? Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> and that's admirable self-restraint, too. Like, you're working to preserve that. I would have given in and destroyed the memory. <laughs> Ashley Christensen, thank you so much for stopping by the Eater Upsell Studio. It was such uh, a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, and folks can check out your various restaurants, coffee shops, cocktail bars, private dining operations, etc., if they're in the Raleigh-Durham area. Please come see us. And, and where up- can we find you on social media, Ashley? Uh, so I am on Twitter, at Pools Diner. And then on Instagram, I'm Ashley underscore Christensen. Boom. And you can pick up a copy of Pools, the beautiful cookbook, wherever fine books are sold. Probably, you know, any books, really, not just fine ones. Though yeah. it is a fine book. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for coming by the upsell. Greg and I yeah, have been thanks, thrilled Ashley. to talk to you. Thank you both. And Bill. <laughs> thanks, Bill. The Eater Upsell is recorded in Vox Media's studios in beautiful Midtown Manhattan and also sometimes in our satellite studio in sunny Los Angeles, California. Our producers are Patrick Bulger and Maureen Giannone. Our studio team is Alex Ulreich and Miles Ewell. Our associate producer is Kendra Vaculin. Our associate producer and editor extraordinaire is Daniel Janine. And your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and that guy over there, Greg Morabito. But the most important person in the creation of this entire thing is you. Thank you, beautiful listener, for being exactly who you are.